My guest today is Dr. Christian Bacove, Education Act academic at the University of Southampton, specialising in maths and research methods, and a former teacher in the Netherlands. Today we are hunting out research myths and seeking out oversimplifications in the research. Hello, Christian. Hi, John. So, do you want to give people a little bit of background first on where you're coming from on these, this hunting out of the research myths? Where's your sort of background? How, do you, how are you uh, qualified, if you like, to uh, assess this stuff? Okay. Um well, you can already hear from my accent, I'm not from here, so I, I, I was uh, born in the Netherlands and uh, was a secondary school teacher there in uh, mathematics, so uh, my degree is in mathematics and I also taught uh, computer science, secondary school, um, got involved in a lot of projects uh, with uh, Utrecht University, uh, and uh, so basically got involved in academic research, and got more and more interested in the way that you could actually uh, do uh, education research because I thought that a lot of uh, education research sometimes seems a little bit ivory tower on the one hand mm. um, but then on the other hand I, I always thought that uh, teachers uh, and, and the general public maybe sometimes feel that it's very easy to do you just have a control group experimental group and then you go and then you're, you're done and then we can see how effective this is uh, and I, I think it turns out that it's actually one of the hardest sciences perhaps to, uh, uh, mm -hmm. to study. So I, I started uh, doing more and more research, finished my PhD uh, in 2011, and then in 2012 came to uh, England. My, my mother's English, so I do have uh, some kind of bond already with uh, <laughs> England. Um, and, uh, well, encountered a, a, a vibrant discussion, sometimes maybe too vibrant, within the education uh, community. I was already very active on social media in the Netherlands, actually, on Twitter especially. Uh, and I could roll in straight away and, and, and comment it on quite a lot of, uh, especially sort of methodological uh, issues and the way that uh, science is perceived and perhaps social science education research and the rest is sort of history. I, I think I can say I'm quite active uh, still on social media mm. and try to, try to well, b do a fair, I would say, evaluation and judgment of um, how I see things with regard to education research. And your maths background obviously allow, enables you to, to look in detail at the statistical work that goes on in a lot of research, but also because you, you are a practicing academic yourself, you look at the research methodology side of stuff as well. Um, how much do you think of you know, the most popular theories around at the moment, how much of that do you think is uh, fully understood by teachers in terms of, is it an easy process? You've gone through the process of becoming a teacher to an academic. Is it as simple as picking up some papers and, and reading them and trying to understand them or is that translation a difficult process? Um. I, th I think it's I if you all have to do it on your own, that is a difficult process, I think. Mm. But of course, you're not alone. There is a whole so sort of s uh, society out there. And I think uh, especially one reason I'm on social media is that um, you have a, a sort of the, the wisdom of the crowd uh, yeah. helping you and, and, and sending you interesting papers and interesting findings. But of course, in that process of translating uh, difficult, complex papers, and findings into sound bites, 280 character sound yeah. bites now. Um, that that is difficult as well. So, 
I think you do need to be careful that you don't get some kind of Chinese whispers almost, where you start off with a very complex situation and uh, basically uh, uh, you change, you morph the whole message of this nuanced message of an academic into 280 characters that sometimes feels like a, a good representation, but just as often perhaps uh, seems a little bit like a shortcut. Mm. And then of course uh, it becomes uh, tricky. In the end, a teacher simply needs to uh, adopt and, and integrate it in their daily practice. And uh, well, you can, you can shout as often as you want that X should work. But if it's not working while I'm teaching, I'm not. Go I'm going to adjust, and I might be doing other things that, uh, on paper, should not be as efficient. That process of sort of trying to simplify a research message, obviously, is something that we've we've talked about with the EEF and how they how they sort of translate their research to a, to a teacher audience, and you know the belief that to engage with the research, some of the language of research is so impenetrable. That, that some simplification of, of, of the theory is, is needed. In that process of simplification, is it, is it often done in an ideological way, so that people are interpreting through their own ideology, or is it a, a simple misunderstanding sometimes, or a, or a lack of time to fully appreciate the argument, or perhaps a mix of all three? Yeah, well, yeah I was going to say all of the above, I think. Yeah. Um, it also depends a little bit whom you talk to. Uh, there are, are, are uh, people who would argue, uh, and researchers as well, and even uh, paradigms that that's basically say that all knowledge is sort of uh, biased in a mm. sense and is uh, perceived through a, a certain lens. And even if you go back in the centuries, you get all discussions with uh, Hume and, and, and uh, Kant, uh, philosophy, that discuss exactly those, uh, uh, those things. So yeah, probably a little bit of that. There is a lot of uh, confusion probably in terminology. Mm -hmm. um, two interesting papers uh, were published, I think, in the last five years or something, exactly about, uh, for example, psychological terms that nobody better can use or pairs of psychological terms where um, there is confusion between the two terms when in daily life you would simply use them interchangeably. Okay. So yeah, well, then, then you, you've got a problem really. And things like significant, by the way, uh, is an example because significant in statistics has a, a, a specific meaning. Uh, and, and one that has been criticized, but significant in a sort of, oh, something significant happened in my life. <laughs> that has a, has a sort of daily meaning as well. What's the difference between those two terms? And if, if I say something significant to my life, obviously it means it, it's changed something or it's important. In statistics, what does significant mean in that context? Well, it, it is part of, uh, it's often used in the context of a uh, so-called null hypothesis, significance testing. Mm -hmm. So significance then is attached to, uh, uh, for example, and they have been criticized a lot, but uh, p-values, uh, so sort of the amount of evidence f uh, against a certain uh, null hypothesis or a null assumption. Um, and that is uh, quite a specific, and, and you can calculate these thresholds, and then you can say, well, uh, there is a significant effect. But because we use significant in daily life, in a, oh, important, important, yeah. significant, important, um, th that is not exactly the same as how it's used in uh, statistical testing. 
And if you would then use it in your daily life, you say, oh, no, it was clearly a significant result. That those, if, if it's in the statistical sense, that is different from sort of in the, in the, in the daily uh, use uh, sense. And that's um, where I guess we get confused in terms of, you know, if, if we're saying, oh, but this test done by this person disproves the way you teach because look how significant their results were or how reliable we always attribute it to a reliability. Oh, that's another good one, reliability. yeah, Reli reliability. Yeah. Uh, would, you would you buy a car from someone who is unreliable? Yeah. And it was like, no, of course not. Who would buy a car from an unreliable person? Um, uh, but reliability also has a specific sort of research methods uh, um, uh, connotation and there are different types of reliability if, if for example we observe something or let, let's say we, we we mark a paper and you do this and I do this and then we look whether uh, we have marked it in the same way we get the same score mm. then we th we have so-called inter-rater reliability so we have two rate judges two raters like mm -hmm. us two and then we look how much agreement is there between us two that's a, that's uh, and and you can quantify this and and that is uh, one form of reliability but reliability can also be so-called test retest reliability so if i give one test to a student on on day one and 10 days later i give the same test will the score be exactly the same or will the score be the same mm. um, because sometimes it is important because it shouldn't be uh, based on the whim of the day or because you've uh, had a uh, a crisis on exactly uh, one day. Mm. Um, that, that's a, a different form of uh, type of uh, reliability. So, so just as serving as an example, that indeed terminology uh, also comes into play and is very uh, important. Um, we use labeling often, of course, to sort of summarize in one go, in one word, what we mean by that. But I think it does make sense to sometimes probe a little bit deeper whether we really have a common understanding of the term that we are talking about. Mm. Because you can have sort of big bad things can happen if you're, if you're not on the same page in that respect. Yeah, and, and we've spoken before as well about the unseen research, the publication bias in research. So not only is the research that as a teacher we might access and read and try and find our way through all those misunderstandings and terminologies you've just talked about. But also we need to have an appreciation of what isn't there. Can you talk a bit a little bit about that as well, about the publication bias, about, you know, some of the work you've done around saying, well, you know, yeah. what aren't we seeing? Yes, I, I would say publication bias might actually be one of the biggest uh, challenges for academia or, or science mm. uh, in general. Because um, I think it, perhaps it's actually quite human that you want something special <laughs> to arise from a piece of research. Uh, students often come to me and they say, well, but look, it, <laughs> well, nothing special came out of this. And, and in a sense, my job then is to say, well, it doesn't really matter. But we all know or have this feeling that it, you wish something exciting would come out of a piece mm. of research. It's actually not very realistic to expect that because a lot of things uh, don't work, <laughs> yeah. or they should not work, or and some things do work. And we and the, the problem is we don't know upfront what will work and what won't work. So that means that uh, I think it's quite r reasonable to expect a lot of so-called null results. So there is no effect, or nothing has happened, nothing comes out of it. Um, but when you want to go and publish in journals. Um, 
especially some people would say the the the, the bigger more prominent journals like nature and science for example which again i know education research doesn't sort of normally publish in there but just as an example then it would be difficult to get into those journals because if you if your result is oh yeah this is a result nothing special really happened yeah, yeah. and we i think we all understand uh, why that is on the one hand but it also uh, poses a big problem because it means that in those journals you basically get the the positive results the favorable results mm. so that is uh, in a nutshell publication uh, bias um, and those are the journal articles that we then sort of uh, use to, to present uh, a, a certain case to say oh look uh, hundred in meta analyses for example meta reviews uh, hundred studies said that it would work uh, so pff, that must be and it must really be working because otherwise there wouldn't have been hundred but of course that is only because those hundreds have been published yeah, yeah. and uh, what is almost impossible to find out is how many studies have there been that have never been published and just ended up in a, in a, in a big drawer so a, a different name for publication bias is file drawer problem <laughs> exactly for that reason yeah, yeah. why have so many studies or how many studies perhaps have ended up in these drawers and because it's notoriously hard to find out of course um, it, it, uh, we know it's there that problem but it's very hard to really uh, tackle it and so when you're you know, you're in this field you're an academic you see a new paper so you're looking for all these things you're looking for publication bias you're looking for the terminology used, you're looking for the methodology used, you're looking for the vari uh, variables taken into consideration. I mean, how much time does, does it take, you know, you're doing this day in day out, how much time does that take to assess a piece of research for, for all those factors? A lot of time, yeah. yeah. You, you really, for, for if you really do close reading, I think you can get a, uh, and, and again, I, th I, I, would, I would say that I'm now hopefully quite trained to do this fairly uh, quickly uh, and to know where to go exactly in a paper. Uh, if you want a quick impression, then maybe uh, 15 minutes would be enough. Mm. But if you really want to dive into, um, um, for example, the instruments or the wording of the questions or even the statistical uh, methods or, or something that also happens a lot um, referencing certain papers and checking if the actual uh, interpretation or the summary because you can't sort of put the whole paper within your own paper mm. you need to summarize it whether it actually summarizes the the other paper correctly or mm. whether it's cherry-picking or not etc you would so you would have to trace down perhaps certain citations that are in so if you really have the full work you're talking about hours I would say really and that's for someone who's like you who knows what they're looking for essentially yes so yeah. in terms of teachers being able to to do this with the with the time limitations they have Trying to, if they let's say they got to the point where they could do that fifteen-minute check very, very efficiently. Maybe it takes them half an hour. Maybe they can squeeze that into into their already busy schedule. Should they be taking that that glimpse that you're talking about and, and making assumptions of that? Is that a safe thing to do, or should you only make assumptions or, or um, decisions on research once you've done you know the days, hours, days research? 
That's a, a difficult one because I, I would say uh, uh, sort of uh, to try and refrain from big conclusions mm. uh, until you have a have a, a sort of a more fuller overview of, of the situation. I think in that sense meta reviews try to do exactly that. But of course we and, and there should be a systematic way of studying all these uh, papers. But you can't completely, of course, rule out that uh, there m might still be some kind of bias. For example, in what studies you include. Some people would say everything qualitative, away with it, not rigorous enough, etc., etc. Which would, I think, would be a shame because they often give a more richer picture of the situation. Mm. But it is harder to generalize from them. Um, so I would say uh, that they... I think it's useful to do that, to, to analyze an article and read articles, but perhaps more to get uh, a sense of uh, the enormous complexity and uh, variables that are at play, rather than getting having a silver bullet at the end. Oh, look, this article says it should work. Because you could argue that because uh, science is incremental, we build on, on, mm. on previous science and we keep on building, one study will never be enough. Sort of the study of all studies that yeah, finally yeah. showed that um, it, it worked. It's actually the whole body uh, of uh, knowledge that builds. Uh, and triangulation, for example, where you look at the same phenomenon from different perspectives, perhaps uh, with uh, 10 robust experimental studies, but then also 10 more qualitative studies where you actually interview people and at, uh, and then maybe even some some econometric papers that look at policy and whether the the sort of over time. So this whole, I would say, package of uh, studying a certain phenomenon that, in my view, can bring you closer to uh, some sort of conclusion. Um, it's interesting you say that um, because you so often you get in the in these debates, you, you say, "Oh, you know, um, let's say mixed ability uh, grouping is better than setting, or let's say uh, this is how you do teacher assessment." And people say, "Okay, how do you know that?" And you'll get a single study cited or a single theorist cited. So they'll say, um, "I don't know." For mixed ability teaching, they might cite the work of Becky Francis or somebody like that, even though that study's yet to publish fully yet. But in so in that sense, that's 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 a sort of dangerous. If you're not caveating those statements with, obviously this is a complex situation, then it's dangerous to take, as you say, like a silver bullet from from those single names or single studies. I think I, I think so. It, it does depend a little bit on whether sometimes more than one study sort of in, is included in new studies, of okay. course. Uh, and ideally, uh, you would have a, a, a thorough literature review even before. Uh, a new study is conducted. That's the part I, I like least, to be honest, <laughs> in, in doing research where you have to summarize the, the previous research uh, and, and show that you are doing a, an original contribution, you're doing something new. I, I don't like it for the reason I said earlier, because, uh, well, uh, why does it have to be new? Sometimes you can even replicate old stuff to see if in, it works in different contexts, but I like it even uh, uh, less. Uh, because it sometimes feels like looking back rather than looking forward. Mm. On the other hand, you need to look at the, uh, indeed, look at the more complete picture. So I, I agree that uh, with these, uh, these caveats should always be added to uh, a piece of research. 
can never be the sort of the end of all discussions, uh, etc. That doesn't mean sometimes this statement is misconstrued. That it means that I don't believe in in some things being more valid and reliable mm. than other things. No, you cer certainly there there is more evidence for certain things than for uh, other things, of course. Um, for example, I would say the role of socio-economic status in um, in um, in education. I think there is quite a body of uh, literature that at least says that it plays a role, <laughs> which is um, qu quite, a, I would say, s a safe conclusion uh, to take. So, yeah, caveats, I, I like them. Some people feel that it doesn't bring us more certainty, but that's exactly the point. Yes. Because <laughs> pretending that we are sure and certain about certain things uh, and now I'm using the word certain, by the way, <laughs> in two different ways, uh, is exactly what actually can cause this, this, this sort of overconfident feeling of, oh, now we finally know that, that we know you just do this and then it will work. Yeah. And so your journey from teacher to academic, the aim of this podcast is to, to look at some of the myths in education and, and to find the, the sort of oversimplifications and I think going through the process that we've just done sort of highlights that this isn't about blaming teachers for misinterpreting research. Absolutely not, no, no. But it's about looking at, you know, sort of bit, a bit of background really to what we're going to do next, which is to look at some of the key uh, theories that are prominent in education and for you to explain a little bit about, you know, where some of the misunderstandings or oversimplifications have occurred. And, um, do you want to start perhaps with Hirsch as he's... Uh, our school's minister's favourite um, academic and obviously heavily influential uh, in the knowledge-based curriculum. Where do you think Hirsch has um, been misinterpreted or oversimplified? So I, I read his last uh, book. I sometimes try to blog. I'm not a very good blogger, I must uh, admit. At least my, my writing could be a bit more exciting, I would say. <laughs> but um, uh, that's why we've got you for, of course, and, <laughs> and, uh, and other media. But um, I think he's a very interesting uh, 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 person, to be honest. Uh, one thing that I certainly needs to be taken into account, I, I would say, is the U.S. Uh, context. Okay. I know a little bit about the sort of the, the latest developments with, uh, but not all Common Core uh, uh, reforms uh, in uh, American education. I think we all heard about things like charter school developments, etc., and perhaps some people even heard about how after New Orleans, for example, the whole school system was gone because of the mm. the um, uh, what was it uh, tornado. No, uh, Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, yeah, yeah I, tornado, hurricane. <laughs> I need to brush up on my knowledge there. Um, and that it was uh, wiped away and they started a whole new movement, etc., etc. So I, I would say the U.S. context is, is one thing that needs to be very prominent in uh, evaluating and thinking about uh, Hirsch. I read his latest book. I loved it a lot because one thing uh, I do like a, a lot is people who are passionate about uh, fairness in education and I think throughout the book and uh, you talk to him uh, I think it's quite obvious that he 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 wants education to be more fair for mm. everyone and that's another US context of course uh, if I if I am to go on the coefficients for uh, equality or inequality 
things like so-called Gini coefficient, for example, then the USA is actually quite unequal, an unequal country. Mm. Rich are rich, poor, poor. The, the, the division is quite strong. And I think in education as well, that has, his, has its impact on education. So I think part of his um, desire of more fairness mm. is also fed by the gross inequality that uh, perhaps is in the in, in the USA. So I understand that and I love that. I do think that he he himself, but maybe even the people interpreting him even more, mm. uh, do exaggerate a little bit when it comes to, for example, the 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 role of knowledge. Well, I know immediately that if I say something like that, some people say, oh, are you saying knowledge is not important? <laughs> yeah. Because that's how discussions go. Uh, you get uh, almost a binary that if you are not for us, you are against us. Mm. And that's not what I mean, because I think uh, actually knowledge underpins everything. Um, and you need knowledge. There are different types of knowledge, uh, declarative knowledge like facts and maybe even procedural knowledge, doing stuff, etc. Uh, and I think uh, that's one occasion in his book where uh, he, and especially the interpretations of his work, simplify a little bit too much. Mm. Um, because these different types of knowledge are also relevant. So simply, uh, um, I would say, summarizing it, as, as my feeling is some are doing, that knowledge is everything. Mm simply disregards this distinction between different types of knowledge, in my view. Another uh, part is uh, the whole chapter about France. I really understand that process because we sometimes need, need to make things more simple because otherwise we just get crazy. <laughs> we need to sometimes simplify things. Mm. In the end, if you want to go to the cinema or not, or when you're standing in front of the sweet store, you need to make a choice and, and or not bring something home. Uh, and, and you think, oh, well, yeah, I like those. And, like that. and you need to make a choice in the end. So I understand that you need to make that choice, but we need to be careful that we don't lose a lot of sort of information along the way and meaning indeed. Yeah. And is it then that uh, education is obviously a very complex area because of the number of variables? Uh, one other thing you look at is cognitive load theory, uh, John Sweller's uh, theory, which is incredibly popular at the moment. Um, and obviously the variables he has to take into consideration when, when looking at that theory are, are extensive. And you've spoken in the past about motivation not actually being part of, the, of those studies. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I think he, he even explicitly uh, mentions it in his... There is a document that describes the whole history, I think, of cognitive load theory. Uh, but it, it's not part of the of the framework, and that that's fine. But that doesn't mean, of course, that it it doesn't exist. Mm. And you can then s even still have a, a certain viewpoint on motivation. I think, uh, especially on social media, there are a lot of discussions about whether, for example, uh, motivation uh, adds to better achievement, or achievement leads to more motivation. And my view has always been, and I think it is supported by most of the literature, is that it's a bi-directional uh, mm. nature uh, because it works both ways. 
Um, That's quite a big variable to leave out of, of a study like that, isn't it? It just becomes too uh, complex. And I feel a little bit of regret when I leave out these variables. And I even think, oh, but now what, what does it say now if I don't <laughs> put that? But I can't put, uh, let's say, 100 variables into this model because it, uh, it, it, it will take days to compute. It will not be very meaningful, etc., etc. So I understand that. Uh, and certainly just as long as you know exactly what it is you are aiming for. So that's why research questions need to be so precise. Mm. And in most research articles, they will be quite precise and be defined. And the terminology will be defined. What do I mean? What do I what is the scope? What do I put in? What do I leave out? All these things uh, should be explained uh, quite extensively, which, of course, in then and and certainly in PhD thesis that needs to be sorted in articles do you have a word count restriction so then it already becomes fairly tricky but then when you get to things like lengths of blogs or articles it becomes even shorter mm. becomes even more challenging and then when you get to 280 characters well hmm yeah <laughs> that, that becomes even more challenging so uh, I, I, I think it is quite reasonable that you leave things out but simply be open about it. And I think John Sweller, he is open, open about this. But also keep in mind what that means for uh, maybe certain uh, claims that are being made. Um, it, certainly yeah. it certainly explains why every academic we've had on this podcast has been so nuanced in how they've explained their theories. You know, you get an, yeah. impre well, you get an yeah. impression of... You get an impression of the body of work from from schools, from teachers, from 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 some of the reporting of it. Then you talk to them, and you suddenly find everything's incredibly nuanced uh, and and different. I mean, group work's a fascinating one. We've spoken before about how some of the people you'd expect not to be on a group work study in favour of group work, for example, might pop up on one. Uh, you know, and some of their work is just more complicated than perhaps we're able to comprehend. At, at, you know in the messaging if you like we need yeah, I think so I, li I like the word nuance uh, <laughs> there is a I think there is a, a, a paper a sociology paper that ha that has the title expletive nuance <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, uh, which has been cited as a sort of a, a case against nuance and I understand the the objections because of course if you you can have discussions where everything is uh, overly nuanced. Yeah. Uh, when I ask, I love music and I have a very uh, explicit taste in certain music, uh, but other people haven't. And I, I hate it when I ask, what music do you like? Oh, a little bit of everything. I like <laughs> this and I like this and I like top 40 and I listen to pop. And then I think, oh no, I want to know what you really think. Yeah, yeah. So, so I understand a little bit of the frustration when something gets so... Uh, nuanced that uh, you don't really get anywhere, but I would I would say the the facts are the facts, or or and s there are things that are complicated <laughs> that are complex. Um, we do uh, we do uh, one task in uh, in our masters uh, understanding education research module where we. Uh, where we ask students to study a wall. Stupid, stupid task, really. Mm. Um, 
Now, it's not a stupid task, but <laughs> a lot of students think, what are you talking about, a wall? But you can actually record a lot of things about the wall, the temperature, uh, you can uh, look at the construction, what is it made of, etc. Uh, but you can also, where is it standing? Is it part of a larger structure? Over time, like the, the wall in Jerusalem, what happened with the wall, etc. Mm. So, so, so we j just study the wall and we look at the uh, sort of scientific part, but then there's also the more interpretivist part, uh, the history, etc. Things that you could look at. And students find it incredibly difficult uh, uh, and never realize really how 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 many things you can actually study from something so mundane as yeah. a wall. And then uh, we make the link to uh, humans, because a wall is actually quite static. It doesn't go anywhere, really. It doesn't have a thought. It doesn't have any... Uh, um, it, it can't think, etc. And humans do. Yeah. So replace this wall with one human. And then they realize immediately that it, it becomes infinitely more complex. And then several humans that can communicate <laughs> becomes even more complex. So, yeah, it is, it is complex. So why pretend otherwise? Yeah. I, I understand why, because it make, sometimes makes it more bearable, our, our life and, and discussions, and easier. But that doesn't mean that there is any, um, I would say, more truth to a sort of a simplistic way of defining things. I, I've seen people uh, quote uh, Occam's Razor, for example, which is a heuristic that says that all else being equal, the one with the least assumptions or the, the simplest uh, theory should be chosen. Uh, and it's great as a heuristic, and if all else is equal. But that often is not the case mm. because it's such a complex situation. So in I mean, faced with that, is it down to everybody in the field of education research? So is it about the academics continually talking about the nuance, to continually talking about the caveats to, you know, to get that message out there? And from the other side, teachers realizing that you're not gonna get a magic bullet. You're not gonna get a theory that explains everything. You're not gonna be able to look at the research in the level you've talked about on your own. You're going to have you know, these teams of researchers or groups of research, teacher, teacher researchers, you're going to get a better understanding and perhaps from both sides we need some, some cooperation, if you like. Absolutely. No, I, I think that that is the, the way forward. Mm. Um, I think you need this cooperation. Um, you need, uh, I think, academics, you need um, uh, senior leadership, you need teachers, you need teaching assistants, you need uh, uh, knowledgeable people from uh, uh, exam boards. You, you need, basically all of them need to work together. And I must say that there are a lot of sort of, I would say, forces that make that more and more uh, difficult uh, sometimes, it seems. Yeah. Um, and o other forces that o actually are trying to to do some uh, uh, some good there. I, I enjoy the research ed series uh, a lot. I, I presented now there uh, was it two or three times, three or three times I think three or four times maybe with the Dutch version as well, and we'll be presenting again uh, in in Amsterdam. Uh, yeah, and I think that that is the way forward, but. 
there are all kinds of reasons why this is quite hard. I was quite annoyed actually when the minister, when I was presenting at research at, at the same time, literally the same time he was doing his speech at research at and was talking about ivory tower uh, and, uh, academics. Mm. That is not really a, 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 an incentive for academics to, to come out the ivory tower because I, I, what you need is actually maybe even some reform and some appreciation uh, to, to do so. Uh, which again, if you then look at the, at the higher education minister with its focus on uh, teaching excellence framework with your colleagues from Times Higher yeah. and know everything about this and the ref, etc. and the publish or perish uh, culture, it is actually uh, very difficult to um, get some appreciation for the fact that you're going out there and maybe even presented research at. Because, well, we, have, uh, we also have a, an, a serious, and I'm really doing the quotes here, <laughs> just to explain, a serious academic conference cycle as well that we need to attend to. And we need to write uh, the articles. Mm. And we need to get good uh, student survey scores, etc., uh, etc., et because of the fees. So, um, and I think every discipline, whether it's exam boards or teachers, have their own challenges, a workload for teachers, etc., etc. Et so it, we, could, we can say it is great if they would work together more, but the infrastructure needs to be in place to, be actually, uh, to actually do this. And mm. I do think that that has been in this whole call for more ev evidence-informed teaching, etc., etc. It doesn't seem to be something that is really very high on the agenda. The, the, the theme is high on the agenda, but really helping sort of barriers for actually doing this uh, along. I don't really get the feeling that that is being uh, serviced. And it would be great if it did. Maybe some small projects have been started, but that's... It's a question of time and appreciation, like probably all things in life. That's a nice uh, challenge for the DFE there to put something in place to finish the interview. Uh, Christian, thank you very much for joining me. It's been really insightful. My pleasure. Thank you.